Okay. The, uh, the story is told of an eight-year-old boy who was sitting at the dinner table on a Sunday evening, and he was reporting back to his parents what he had learned that particular morning in Sunday school. And uh, he was excited, man. And he was like, you should have heard what I heard. He said, Moses organized all the Hebrews into a resistance group. He said they planned real carefully, and finally they broke loose from their Egyptian slave masters. They moved as fast as they could to the land of Canaan. Uh, they drove every kind of vehicle they could get a hold of, Jeeps and half-tracks and Humvees and 16-wheelers, man, everything that they could find. He said, but the problem was Pharaoh just wouldn't quit. They tracked down the Israelites with radar. He said they exploded missiles all around them. They shot at them from jet planes in the sky. When Moses and the people reached the Red Sea, they thought they were finished. He said there was raging water in front of them. There was the army of the Egyptians behind them. And just when they thought it was all over, the Army Corps of Engineers showed up and they built a pontoon bridge across the Red Sea. He said, and they all went across the Red Sea, and as they got to the other side, they blew up the bridge as Pharaoh and his armies were on it, and Pharaoh and his armies were destroyed, and the people of Israel took possession of the land, and they lived happily ever after. Now, the parents are sitting there listening to this story, thinking, man, this kid's got a problem, or this, or this church has a problem. He said, you know, is that really what they told you this morning? And he looked at him and said, well, no, not really. And the parents said, well, what did you hear? He said, Mom, Dad, if I told you what they told me, you wouldn't believe any of it. <laughs> you know, and the last time that we were together, you know, I began to share with you some of the insights or the spiritual truths that I believe that God was teaching and has been teaching me as, uh, as all of us have been riding this cancer coaster. And as I've searched the scripture, I found great comfort and the person and the work of God as he led the nation of Israel out of the Egyptian bondage and into the land that he had promised his people. And yet this journey, as some of us are well familiar, was not a comfortable one. It wasn't a smooth one. It was a journey that was filled with uh, detours and dead ends and dry holes. And uh, as I've thought about that, I was excited to see that the purpose of these detours and dead ends and dry holes was to lead God's people from a point of being totally desperate to totally dependent upon him. And it was a wonderful thing. You know, in our opening story, you know, the little boy may have, you know, he may have been right if you stop and think about it because, you know, God's leading seems unbelievable to those who lack faith. And in fact, it seems foolish to those who don't know our God. And uh, yet this dramatic story, you know, of the crossing of the Red Sea has stood on its own for thousands of years. You know, and in Jewish history, the Exodus is paramount. You know, it's, it's the, uh, the high tide of God's power moving on the ocean of Israel's corporate history. And their crossing of the Red Sea, the escaping from the, from the uh, death clutches of Pharaoh's army, uh, was a pivotal event, and it was also written, we're told in the New Testament, that it was written as an example to you and I today so that we can learn um, how we today can also move from this point of total desperation uh, to dependence upon God. And so if you've got your Bibles in front of you, turn with me to the book of Exodus, where we're going to look quickly and recap the first point that we saw last time in, in more of, a, in, in, of its entirety. But in Exodus chapter 13, we saw that God is a God who disciplines us through detours. And the detour that we found here is, is seen in verses 17 of chapter 13 through 22, where we are told that as God was leading the nation of Israel, it came about that when Pharaoh had let the people go, God didn't lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and they return to Egypt. Hence God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea, and the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God shall surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. Then they sent out from Succoth and, and camped in Etham on the edge of wilderness, and the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. And he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fear by night, uh, fire by night, uh, from before the people. 
And from this passage, we learn that God's ways are not our ways in the outline that you have before him, before you. We see that you know, God often takes us through detours in life because the straight and quickest route, <clears throat> the straight and most comfortable route, uh, isn't always the best. In fact, oftentimes it's the most dangerous for us uh, spiritually. In this particular account, we're told that God saw that the Philistines were before the people, and God, knowing the Philistines, he recognized that there was an enemy out there that Israel wasn't even aware of. And he said, if I take them on the straight and smooth route, so to speak, at least in their eyes, they're going to get into all kind of trouble. So I'm going to take them on the roundabout way. I'm going to take them on a detour, and I'm going to take them. And, and for them, it's going to look like they're wandering aimlessly in circles. But you know what? There's never panic in heaven, only plans. And so when we're out there wandering around in circles, it's not because God doesn't know what to do with us or where he's leading us. It's because he knows better than anyone where we're going to go. And so he takes us on this journey. He saw the Philistines and knew that it wasn't good for Israel and said, I'm going to take them around this way. He also recognized what we don't often recognize about ourselves, and that is our own weakness. I was reminded of that as I thought about this weakness where Peter said to Jesus one day, hey, everyone else may deny you, but that's never going to happen to me. I mean, look at me, man. I'm a big stud fisherman. There's no way in the world that anybody will ever get me to back down. And it was a little girl who came to him and said, hey, weren't you with the Galilean? And he swore at her and three times said, I don't even know who this guy is. I don't know what you're talking about. And Jesus had warned him, listen, Peter, there's something about your character that I know that you don't even know yet. And you have a weakness that hasn't been exposed, but I'm going to expose it. But don't worry about it because I'm going to pick you up, dust you off. I still have a plan. There's no panic in heaven. And so that's what he saw. And that's what he sees with the nation of Israel. And that's what he sees with you and I. That you know what? God's way is never our way. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. And his way to bring about courage in our life is to take us through the boot camp of the wilderness where he will develop, he will develop character. And we know that from the book of James that, that testing of our faith produces endurance. And endurance has its perfect result that will be complete, mature, lacking in nothing. And so God's path is always a difficult path. And yet it's never one that any of us would sign up for or any of us would ever want to travel. But it's the way that God has chosen to develop spiritual character in the life of his people. And God knows best. He's God. We're not. So it's like if that's what we need to do, then that's where we need to go. And God, if that's where we're going, we trust that you'll lead us in the process. And so, you know, it's always a wonderful thing when we get off of these detours, these aimlessly, what we think are aimlessly wandering about, and finally God gets us back onto where we need to go. Years ago, <clears throat> Lynn and I were traveling, and we were going from San Antonio to Dallas, Texas. And after you travel enough and fly enough, you know that there's a routine that goes on. And, you know, as the plane starts to come down, you know, you hear the landing gear when you're, you know, at a certain altitude and it comes on, comes down and the plane starts to descend. And you look out the window and you watch what's going on. And it's always a funny thing when, when you know that you should continue to land and the plane goes back up in the air. And then you go around in a circle and you go, well, you know, something's not right. And you know that something's happening here. And so sometimes in life, it seems like we're on this detour. We're going around in circles around the city of Dallas. And then we start to land and you think, okay, we're back on track again. Oh, all of a sudden we come to a dead end. And that's where God takes the nation of Israel from this detour, this discipline of, of detours to now this dilemma of a dead end. And we're going to pick that up in chapter 14, and we'll start in verse 1, the dilemma of dead ends as we see it before us. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Pihiroth, between Migdal and the sea you shall camp in front of Balzaphon, opposite it, by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, they are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, and they did so. Now when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done that we have let Israel go before serving us? So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him. And he took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with others and his officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, 
and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. You know, while Israel was moving through the wilderness, something was happening back in Egypt that would turn the discipline of the Lord's uh, detours into the dilemma of a dead end. You know, we're told here in this particular account what was going on, and we're told that in verse 4 that God was going to harden the heart of Pharaoh and that he would be honored through this process. And you can only imagine what was going back on in Egypt at that particular time as Pharaoh's heart was hardened. We know that Pharaoh had a hard heart to begin with. If you go back and you look at all the evidence that God had used to display that he was God and who he is and all the plagues that had, had uh, quote, plagued Egypt. And yet at the same time, throughout this process, Pharaoh was just dug in, man. He was relentless on his, on his refusal to allow Moses to lead Israel out of the land of Egypt. You know, and Moses was hesitant, if you remember the story, and he said, you know what, God, you know, who should I say sent me? And God said, tell him I am. You tell him God sent you. It was God who sent Moses to, to the Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And so he refused to do it. And so God demonstrated his power before Pharaoh and before all of Egypt. And he was still dug in just as people today in their hardness of their heart see all the evidence of the glory of God around them and refuse to accept the evidence. They see his hand in creation. They see his work in their own lives personally. They see the evidence of, of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, his, his death on the cross, the power of his resurrection. They see millions upon millions of people looking at the evidence and repenting of sin and turning to God in faith and trusting that Jesus is who he claims to be, the very Messiah of God, the Savior of the world. They put their faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. Their lives are changed. And we have this miracle upon miracle that happened on a regular basis basis as God changes lives people are hard had hard hearts to God that all of a sudden now are dead to their sins and alive to God and they're reborn by the will of God and people see this evidence all around them and they refuse to accept it they refuse to believe and they dig in with a hard heart and that was Pharaoh's case and so Pharaoh you know got to the point where he was saying hey you know what what what, what do we do after the initial shock of all the evidence had passed Pharaoh reevaluated his situation and said, what did we do? Pharaoh got up and he had to make his own coffee. You know, he didn't have anybody waiting on him anymore. He got up and he had to go out and rake his own sand. And then he got up and, you know, somebody had to take care of the horses and the camels, if you know what I mean. And he's like, what did we do? We had two million free slave laborers. And, you know, and we got scared and we let them go. And his heart was still hard. And then the Bible says there's a point where man's heart is hard on its own. And then God comes along and says, I'll seal that heart over so there's no turning back. And see, this is the most frightening thing to me as I consider those who say that they're considering the evidence of God's existence, the claims of Christ, whether Christ really is the way, the truth, and the life, whether he is the answer, God's answer for the problem of sin in the world, where they look and they say, well, yeah, I'm considering this evidence. And yet, you know what? Here's the thing is, when, when God knows a person's heart is hard, you put yourself in a very dangerous position of God saying, you know what, you've had enough time, there is no more time. And so you and I sometimes we go, as long as there's life and breath in the person's life, there's still hope, there's still a chance. And we need to believe that so that we continue to have compassion and continue to share that message. But you know what, the reality of God's word is that, you know what, there could be a person who at the age of 30 is confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, sees all of the evidence, the Holy Spirit tugs on their heart and says, you need to repent of your sins. You need to trust in Christ. And that person says, I will not do that. And then they live for 50, 60, 70 more years. But the hardness of their heart was sealed at a moment of time, and only God knows that moment. And we just continue to pray that God would be merciful on those around us who have heard the gospel and continue to reject Jesus as their Savior so that they would continue to have another opportunity but you know what we need to be very aware of what the bible teaches 
because if you're sitting here today or listening to these words and you have yet to turn from your sin and trust in Christ as your Savior, then you're messing with an opportunity that may not present itself no matter how many more years you live this side of eternity. And that's why the Bible says today is the day of the Spirit. If you hear God tugging on your heart, you repent today and you trust in Christ today because you may not have another day to make that choice or that decision. And so as Pharaoh, in the hardness of his heart, says, you know what, I want nothing to do with God. And so God says, fine, then you will have nothing to do with me. And now I will use you to bring glory to my life. And that's what we see happening here. The point is this, that it was, it's important to remember that while Israel was marching through the wilderness, they didn't know that this was all going on behind the scenes. And there is always a spiritual battle, my friends, that's taking place behind the scenes that often you and I are blind to and cannot see and cannot hear. And we need to recognize that there is a spiritual battle. And our battle is not against flesh and blood, but our battles against spiritual force that forces these enemies in the darkness, these principalities and things that we can't see that are actually more real than these things that we can see for what we can't see is passing away and what we cannot see is eternal. And so as we look at this and understand this, it was God's plan to lead his people to a dead end. It is the same with us today. God leads his people to an impossible situation so that you and I will become so desperate we become dependent upon him. I can't tell you how many times in this last year and a half or so where I have just cried out to God in desperation because I recognize that He is my rock and He is my fortress and He is my only hope because my trust is in Him and only Him. And I thank God for the people that He has brought into my life through this process, but I realize that, you know what? In Him is my hope. And that desperation leads to that point. And you may be at such a point now, you may be at this dead end in your life right now, and if so, let me ask you the question, and that is this one, very simple. How are you responding? How are you responding? Because notice in verses 9 through 12 how Israel responded. It says, Now the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them where they were camping by the sea where God had led them. And as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they became very frightened, and the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. They were desperate, and they realized their desperation led them to dependence upon God. But it didn't stop there. We're told that they said to Moses, Hey, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now I want you to stop and think about something here. I can understand what was going on. God told them where to go. They get to the edge of the Red Sea. They look at the sea. The mountains on this side. The mountains are on that side. This roaring sea is in front of them. They look back and they see this big old cloud of dust coming up through the desert. And they see as they look back the sun shining off of, uh, of the, uh, you know, the, the armor that the Egyptians have you know, and, and all that's in front of them, their shields. And they're looking at this going, man, you know what? This stinks. Living Bible paraphrase version. <laughs> it's like, well, this is nuts. And I'm going to ask you a question, and that is this. You know, how do you respond when you come to these dead ends? What they started to do was, like so many of us, unfortunately, they started to play what? The blame game. It's got to be someone's fault. It's your fault. And look at they said, Moses. Wasn't there enough places to bury us in Egypt? You had, to, you, know, you had to bring us out into the middle of this? I mean, we'd have been better off staying in Egypt. You could have just killed us there, saved us a trip. And not only that, didn't we tell you when we were in Egypt that we liked being here? No, you didn't. But, but how convenient was the memory... You know, they started playing the blame game. And let me tell you something. Here's how you and I can know 
where we are not in the will of God when God leads us to a dead end, when we start blaming other people, when we have a bad attitude, when we start thinking that our life was better the way it was before and we'd rather go back there. See, there's a lot of people who come to faith in Christ and all of a sudden they recognize, you know what, God's path is through the wilderness. All these people that are out there saying, God wants you to have a Rolex. God wants you to have this. God wants you to have prosperity. God wants you to have health. God wants you to have wealth. God wants you to dress nice, drive nice cars, have good jobs. God wants you to be happy. Everybody that teaches these things ignores the truth of, the, of Scripture, and that is, you know what? God's path to conform us into the image of His Son always takes us through the wilderness. He said, are you able to drink the cup in which I will drink? That's the path. Pick up your cross, deny yourself daily, and come and follow me. It's not an easy road. That's why so many people, when they get on the road that they're told is the road, they get on it and they go, oh, this isn't a very comfortable road. You know where I'm going? Back to Egypt. I'm going back here. I'm going back where it's comfortable. I was miserable, but I was comfortable. I knew what to expect. And God says, hey, you know what? Forgetting what lies behind, we press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We don't go back because we don't exist anymore. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away. All things become new. You can't go back. There's nowhere to go. When he said to his disciples, when the masses of people were leaving because they just wanted to be fed physically food, and Jesus said, no, I have come that you would eat of my body, that you would trust in me, that you would follow me. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. We came so we can go on easy street. You just keep giving us food to eat every day and water to drink. We don't have to go to the well. We don't have to go to work. We don't have to go to the market. We don't have to work hard. You just keep feeding us. And he said, I'm not going to do that anymore. I just did that to make a point who I am. Now come and follow me. They said, we're not doing that. We're not following you. Jesus looked at his disciples and said, you guys going to drop out too? And they said, no, where are we going to go? You have words of eternal life. We're on this path forever. We're following you. Where are you at? Tempted to go back to Egypt? There's nowhere to go back to Egypt. It isn't as great as you remembered it to be. It was miserable. And that desperation in your misery is what led you to dependence upon God and trust and faith in Christ. You can't go back. There's nowhere to go. So with that in mind, I'm thinking about, wow, you know what? There, there's, there's this tendency for us to blame others. Let me give you an example on my ride on the cancer coaster. So as I'm riding the cancer coaster, we came across a doctor who was doing a treatment. Some of you know the story. He was doing some type of immune treatment. And anyway, make a long story short, whatever he was doing seemed to be working. Because as we looked at CT scans, the objective measurement of what was going on internally that we couldn't see, we saw that, hey, those tumors are shrinking. And so we found a course of action. We took that course of action. We praised God for it. In the midst of all of this, as these are shrinking, the doctor who was treating me, he disappears. Now, it would have been very easy at that point because now in hindsight I found out he had his own health problems, his own issues that were going on. And it would have been very easy at that point to become bitter just like the Israelites did. Hey, you know what, God? I mean, how could you lead us out on this path and then in the midst of this, this guy disappears? And to start to blame him. What kind of doctor just disappears on his patients? You know, and to get nasty and to get cynical and to get skeptical and get bitter and to put the, you know, start playing the blame game and blah, 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 blah. And you know what? And we chose not to do that. And the reason that we chose not to do that is because we believe that it was God who led us to the dead end. And I know it blows people's mind to think of this, but I want you to understand something. This passage of Scripture teaches very clearly that it is God who often leads us to our dead ends. So if God is in control of every, listen, and He's either in control of everything or nothing, you can't pick and choose what you think God's in control of. He's in control of everything. And so we realized that in the midst of this treatment, if our doctor disappeared, God was still in control of that as well. And I wasn't going to blame this man or anybody else. I was going to continue in my family. We we're going to continue to seek God's leading in his direction because obviously we know that all things, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. That means even a doctor disappearing, there is a purpose and there is a reason. And you know what? And there is no panic in heaven another illustration from my own life for years i taught a bible study at a, at a local church and it grew from a handful of people to a lot of people and we were told at that time some of the leadership came to me and said listen 
we don't want you teaching this Bible study anymore because too many people are coming to it. Now, you can think whatever you want, and it doesn't really matter, and the purpose of the illustration is this. It became very apparent to me at that point that we had come to a dead end. There was no negotiation after a couple of years of discussion and conversation that didn't go anywhere. It became very apparent that not only were we going around in circles of the discipline of God's detour, but God then also brought us to, now you have hit a dead end. And when I was told that I was not going to be allowed to teach the Word of God anymore, it became very apparent to me that I could not neglect the gift that God had given me, and it was time for us to move on. Not knowing what that meant, not knowing where it would lead, but it was just a matter of saying, okay, Lord, we trust you. I don't understand what's going on. And I know Israel didn't understand. When they stood at the Red Sea, they saw the army behind the mountains on each side, and they saw the sea in front. You know that you know, they didn't have a clue what was going on. Now, some of them became bitter and cynical, and I choose not to blame anybody at the church that I was at before because I can see today that God brought us to where we are, and you know what? We would have missed all of this. <laughs> and so my point is, don't be bitter, don't be cynical, don't be blaming people, but stop and look at it and ask God, God, what is it that you're doing? Where is it that you are leading what is it you're trying to teach us? What is it that you want us to do? Here I am, Lord, send me. And that's where we are. You know, and the people were saying, you know, hey, God, you know, Mo, can't you read a road map, dude? I mean, they were looking at Moses and they were blaming him for everything. And it was like, man, they got ugly and they got nasty. And I just want you to understand one thing that God really impressed upon me is this. Why does God discipline us with detours? Why does God lead us to dead ends? Hey, folks, so that he will be honored. And the only way that he will be honored is how you and I respond. He was not honored by complaining, moaning, groaning, critical, blaming people. He was honored by the people that said, All right, Lord, this is where you have us. This is where you led us. We trusted you to get us here. We trust you to get us from here to wherever it is you're taking us. And it's okay, as I said, to ride the cancer coaster because I know the ride operator. And it's a great place to be. See, why does God lead us to dead ends so that he can be honored? Folks, our purpose as God's people is to glorify God in our earthly bodies. There are times where God will lead you straight into a place of desperation and you won't see any way out. Now remember again, when you come to that place, there is no panic in heaven, only plans. And the Israelites were not out of the will of God when they hit the dead end. They were straight, flat dab in the middle of it. They were right where God wanted them to be. Why? So he could teach them to turn their desperation into dependence upon him. Are you depending upon him or are you playing the blame game? Are you dependent upon him or do you think it's better to be where you used to be? Are you depending upon him and do you believe that he is in control? One of the greatest blessings in my life has been cancer. To see God's hand, to hear his voice, to sense his presence and his peace and his comfort and his strength in my weakness has been one of the most wonderful experiences of having cancer. After my fourth surgery, I had a lung specialist who came to my hospital room at St. Joe's. And it's always fun because they walk into the room and I'd never met the guy. <clears throat> you walk in the room and they look at your chart, you know, and they look at your tag and they see that it's you and they check the chart. And he starts going through a list of questions. He's like, do you smoke? No. Have you been exposed to prolonged radiation? 
<laughs> and I was thinking, yeah, when they were treating my groin and I signed a waiver that said radiation may cause cancer, which is a real interesting approach, uh, by the way. But I just said no because I knew what he meant, uh, no. And he goes through this list of questions and the answer is no, 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 no. And then what does he do? He looks at all of it and he says, I don't understand this. You shouldn't have this disease. Really? <laughs> and thus they call it the practice of medicine. Because apparently he didn't understand what I understood. I have it. <laughs> I said, really? Well, I'm, I, you know what? Apparently I should because I do. And he just walked out of the room. Well, that was the end of it. What was he going to do? And it was great because it was kind of like I just laid back and I started to laugh. Because I was like, okay, God, you know, how much clearer do you have to make this in my life than, you know what, that, that, that this is happening for your purpose, for your glory, and so that you'll be honored, and you know what, and don't let me mess it up. The point is that God has a plan when he leads us on detours and into dead ends, and so what I want to share with you today is stop blaming other people. I get so saddened when I hear Christians who have critical and bitter spirits toward people because of what, what God is doing in your life. You know, they start blaming doctors because they're not healed. They start blaming HMOs. They start blaming systems. They start threatening lawsuits. They have this miserable, bitter, critical spirit, and it's condemning, and it's blaming. And I think, you know what? Don't you understand that God is in control of everything or nothing? Stop blaming people and minister to them. How? By having an attitude that has shows peace and joy and dependence in your desperation upon God. And what a huge and loud, clear testimony it is of God's people knowing we're in God's hands. And it's okay because, listen, I will not die a day sooner nor live a day longer than has been appointed for me. I just don't know. So we go through the process of being led on detours and into dead ends so that God will be honored and glorified by how we respond to life situations. What should we do when caught between a rock and a hard place, between the devil and the deep, so to speak? What God sought to teach Israel, he seeks to teach us as well today. And let me just share with you some things that jump out at me, starting with verse 13. He says, but, and the word but means in strong contrast to blaming others, in strong contra contrast to being critical of spirit, in strong contrast to, you know, I'm thinking that everything's out of control and there's panic in heaven. In strong contrast to that, let me just give you some advice. Number one, do not fear. Do not fear. To, hu to be human is to know fear, to be scared. You can imagine how skeptical they were of saying, yeah, right, brother. We don't see any way out. Mountains on both sides, sea in, in front of us, army behind us, we're dead meat, and you're telling us, don't be afraid. But you know what? That's wise, godly, biblically solid counsel. Perhaps you've been there. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And we look at this, and I think, man, you know what? There are times in this coaster, cancer coaster ride where I'm going to be upfront and honest with you that, you know what? I have felt a feeling of dread and a feeling of oppression. Where it's just kind of like everything just like, it's like you're in an MRI machine. Everything just kind of squeezes in, and you see that there's like no way out. And yet, what I did, instead of being overcome by these feelings of dread and doom and gloom and despair, as I would go to the Word of God and say, okay, God, you know what? What does your Word have to say to me right now at this moment in time about not being afraid? And as difficult as it may be for us to hear God's Word to us when we're between a rock and a hard spot is, don't be afraid. Do you realize that the words fear not or something equivalent to that are found at least 365 times in the Bible. And what I love about that is, and I'm not too sharp, but you know, it's a math problem, 
but I'm thinking 365 times, 365 days a year, there's at least one good passage or verse for every day of the week. Every day of the year. God's saying, listen, there is not one day when I want you to be afraid. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will uphold you. I will lift you up with my victorious right hand. Isaiah 41.10 I will hold you up. I will... Don't be afraid to lead these people. I have chosen you. I have called you. Be strong and courageous. Be very strong. Be very courageous. Don't let the word of God depart from your lips, but be careful to meditate on it day and night, and you'll be prosperous if you don't deviate to the left or the right, but you apply the things that you learn. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. God doesn't want you to be afraid. There is nothing to fear. Jesus Christ came and gave his life so that we would never have to fear those who trust in him. Fear being judged for our sins by God. That we'd ever have to fear a second spiritual death. That we don't have to fear death itself because Jesus said, I came and I overcame, I overcame death. I was raised from the dead. I am alive today. What's the greatest fear of man? Death. I have overcome death. What are you afraid of? There's nothing to fear. I am with you. Fear plays havoc with our lives. It leads us to find fault and falsely condemn others. And it also blinds us to a healthy, godly, biblical perspective. Notice these people said, hey, we just remember it was better the way it was. No, it wasn't. You hated being in Egypt. You hated being in bondage. You hated being slaves to sin and to be held accountable to such a tough slave and taskmaster. You know what? In God's people, you hated sin. You hated where you were. And in your desperation, you cried out to God. You trusted in Christ. You were born again by the will of God, not by your own efforts or flesh. What lies behind is behind. Old things have passed. All things have become new. And don't you ever buy into the lie that you are better off before you were saved than you are today. Because you weren't. And in that desperation, you cried out to God. And it is a lie from the pit of hell to tell you to go back to where you were. There's no going back. And the only reason we go back is because we're afraid to keep on going forward trusting God. Fear blinds us to where God has led us from. Fear blinds us to what God has delivered us from. They saw the miracles of God. They saw the plagues of Egypt. They saw how God led them out in the wilderness. They saw the cloud by day, the fire by night. They were fed miraculously from heaven. And you know what fear does? It blinds us to everything that God has done in the past in our life. The only reason we look back on our past is to have a healthy perspective that God is trustworthy and he has led us to where we are today. If he has led us the way that he has to get us to where we are, won't he continue to complete the work that he has begun in us to lead us to where he has us go? Don't be afraid. This coming year, make it a point to get into the Word of God and learn everything that you can about fear so that you recognize and understand that you are to not be a victim any longer of your fears, but you are to put your trust and hope in God. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Fear also paralyzes our spirits. It paralyzes us to where we don't take any action whatsoever. But at the same time, he says to them and to us, not only should you not fear, but there's a time to stand still. He says, stand still, stand by, stand firm. All of them equally cry out the same truth, and that is this. All of them give the meaning of waiting at the place where God has brought you, standing firm on his character, his promises, no retreat, no regrets, no reserve, no compromise, no panic. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. You know what fear has us do? Fear has us running around in desperation. And God says, Sit still and see that I'm God. Don't get all freaky. Don't get all panicky. When I was first diagnosed with cancer... The first thing that I was told to do was, you need to undergo massive chemotherapy if you think you're going to survive. I mean, and it's just like, you need to do this now. It scares the crap out of you. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. 
I didn't realize you just said that. I feel like I'm just sitting talking with friends. But it does. <clears throat> so it's like, oh. And Lynn and I were looking, it's like, huh. I said, well, wait, 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 wait. Slow down. Let's trust God. Let's do a little research. Let's go get some counselors, safety and a multitude of counselors. So we go to a couple of different oncologists, and both of them we sit down and say, okay, you know what? Tell us what the deal is. Well, we're going to put you in a hospital, and we're going to blast you, and if we don't kill you, we might save you. Wow, how can you beat that? <laughs> but you look young enough and strong enough that we think you might survive. So, whoa, 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 quantify this for me. Put it in some kind of numbers I understand. What's the chances of what you want to do actually helping the kind of cancer that I have? Maybe 6%. What? That's what I said. I'm like, what? Are you serious? Like 6%. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. And Linda's like, and we're looking at each other. We looked at the one on college and said, well, let me ask something. Would you do this? And he goes, well, I'd really have to think about it. Which is his way of saying, there's no way. <laughs> you got to read between the lines here. It's like, no way. Well, if you wouldn't do it, I'm not going to do it. So we go to another guy, talk to him. He says the same thing. I said, well, let me ask you something. If I leave here today and say I'm not going to do it, I mean, would you beg me to stay and do this? And he goes, no, I'd understand it completely. I said, well, I'll see you. <laughs> and he shut his folder and said, well, good luck to you. Hey, same back, back at you. you know? But it was like, this is crazy. And so it was like, you know, slow down and wait. At that moment of crisis, that moment of panic where you just want to hurry up and do something. Hey, listen, you know what? I have people in business all the time say, look, I'd rather have you do something and have it be wrong than not do anything. Oh, you moron. I would have you wait. I would have you wait before you do anything. I don't want you just doing something so you say you did something, then it turns out wrong. could be worse than everything that we started off with. I want you to wait. Check into things. Seek counsel. Look at different alternatives. Talk to people. Don't just do something so you said you can do something so that, hey, at least you did something. That's crazy. That's not godly. That's not biblical. You know what God says? Wait. Be still and know that I'm God. Wait upon me. So we waited. We did our homework. Linda did her homework. I was busy living life. Okay, you try to do whatever you got to do. So she's looking up all the homework, all the stuff. You know, this doctor, that doctor. We found the doctor that we're going to now. We found the alternative form of chemo that's not as devastating to the body. And all these things made sense. And so God brought us to a dead end. And he said, listen, don't panic. Don't get crazy. Wait. And I will continue to lead you because I led you to this point and I'm not done leading you. I didn't bring you out to the wilderness of cancer to let you just drop dead right now. I'm not done with you. I've got a work to do and I'm going to be honored through this if you allow me to be honored through your life. Okay. So we didn't freak out. We didn't get all panicked. We waited. And because we waited, I praise God for everything that had happened. Oh, let me give you another example. So now we go back. We find the doctor. And he's treating us, and the, and the tumors start to shrink again. Or at least they stay the same. And so we go, okay, well, seeking counsel, what should we do? Well, let's wait some more and see what happens. So we wait. We don't overreact. There's one doctor who said, I might be able to stick that needle in you and burn that thing out. But, you know, if they're stabilized and they're not growing, let's wait. Six weeks go by, and this one little booger, oh, another bad word probably. <laughs> but this one thing triples in size. All the rest stay the same. This one triples. And you go, well... God, it was very clear to us you wanted us to wait. I don't understand this because this thing tripled. And then, you know, and then I always have people, and some of you, just bless your hearts. <laughs> I had one, one lady come up to me and say, why didn't you get that cut out when it was smaller? <laughs> Hadn't thought of that. <laughs> and you smile, and you say, you know what, well... Because we were convinced, and still are, that we had peace that God led us. My wife is a great sounding board in all these decisions. We've got wonderful doctors God brought us in our life. We came to the conclusion, based on the safety of a multitude of counsel, that, you know what, let's just wait. Well, now this thing's tripled, and it's time, the wait time's over. Let's go cut it out. So we go, and we get it cut out. And the surgeon comes in, and he says, Chuck, he goes, it's a good thing they didn't try to burn this thing out. He goes, because what they probably wouldn't have been able to see 
that I found out when I opened you up is that that tumor had grown and attached to your diaphragm. And if they had burned the tumor, the heat from burning the tumor would have went through your diaphragm, burned your diaphragm, and probably perforated your stomach as well, and you would have been in a mess. And I smiled again. Why? Because you can see God's hand again. I mean, I know I'm a guy, and I know ladies that sometimes you think us guys, that we're just not that observant. But it's like, it's getting to the point where it's getting really easy to see God's hand in everything. And it was like, you know what? And I just said, God, praise God. Thank you. Because now I can answer the question of whoever comes and asks me, why did you get it burned out when it was smaller? Say, because we didn't believe God wanted us to do it then, and you know why? Here's why. And does it make any sense? No. How did it make sense to allow something to grow triple its size? I know I, I don't understand that, but all I know is this. God's ways aren't our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts, but I'm still trusting him. Great place to be. It's a great place to be. And so as we look at this and as we continue on the journey, there are times when we need to stand firm, that we need to stand by, that we need to stand on God's promises. And you know what? It's a shame that many folks don't learn this lesson until they're forced to learn it. And yet when they do, when they learn it, their witness is worth listening to. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close this portion of this message with this letter that I came across. And it was a letter that was written by a pastor to his congregation. And so obviously it caught my attention. And it was written to his congregation about a month after he was diagnosed with cancer that from all perspectives uh, turned out to be terminal, inoperable, and would not respond to any treatment. And so he wrote it about a month after he had a pro time to process and to digest what it was that God was teaching him. And here's what he wrote, and I think this is a good breaking point, and we'll continue the message next week. But this breaking point, he writes this. My dear Christian friends, it has taken me 51 years of living and 33 years of Christian life to learn the real meaning of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry about tomorrow. I've been a very ambitious man, and I've abhorred the mediocre. mediocre. Always within me has been the desire to excel. And living this way, I've been impatient and anxious, inattentive, and often unkind. My goals have been long distance and compulsive. In consequence, I've given less than my best to the person in front of me because I was always thinking way ahead to the plans and goals beyond. Now all that is different. My anxieties are gone. I have no idea how long I shall live, but then there is today. Each day, day is meaning more to me than ever before. Each person I meet can have all there is of me for those moments that we're together. I may not get as much done from here on out, but life is far more peaceful. I have at last come to accept these words of Jesus as being just for me. Do not be anxious about your life. Do not be anxious for tomorrow, for each day has enough trouble of its own. He learned what God means when he says, stand still. How about you? Do you have God's peace in your life? Do you know what it means to stand still and rest in him? Are you at a point of, panic and desperation and you think your hope is in you and in your actions and in your decisions if God's spirit is talking to you today and you don't know what would happen to you if you die today then the Bible says today is the day of the Lord today is the day of the Holy Spirit and don't put off tomorrow what needs to be done today some of you have come to church for a long time but I fear that you are not in Christ. My greatest fear as a pastor is that I don't clarify and make as extremely clear as I can the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is that every one of us are born in this world rebelling against God 
and we are sinners, and we are doomed, and we are on the path to hell. But God loves us anyway, and he sent Jesus Christ, his Savior, his Son, into the world to die upon a cross, to take your sins and my sins upon himself as our substitute. He was obedient to the point of death and even death upon the cross. He died on the cross to pay the price for our sins, to ransom us, redeem us, to buy us back to God. He rose again three days later, and he is alive today. For all who come to him and seek forgiveness, he offers it. My hope and my prayer for you today is that you will turn from sin even so right now and that you will trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, his death on your behalf, his resurrection to the newness of life, and that you will receive him as Lord and Savior. And in closing, I want you to bow and to pray with me. And if you are here today and you have never prayed this prayer or a prayer similar to it, then I ask that you would do that today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is in control of all things. There is no panic but plans in heaven. And so, God, I pray for those who are here that have been in church for years but are not in Christ. To pray a simple prayer, oh God, forgive me. You have brought me to this dead end and I am desperate without you. I have come to the point where I realize that I need you and I believe what your word tells me that you love me and sent Jesus Christ, your son, your savior into the world to die for me. God, I believe that he died for my sins. I believe that he rose again from the dead three days later and he is alive today and that he hears my cry even here right now. And to the best of my understanding, I receive him as my savior and my Lord. I trust that old things will pass away and all things will become new. And I look forward to what you will do in my life as there's no turning back as I go forward with you. And God, my prayer for all of us as your people is that we will always be reminded of how you have brought us from Egypt through the wilderness to where you have us today and that you are not done with us. Your word tells us that you who have begun a good work in us will continue to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God, my prayer for your people and myself is that we will not fear for we know that you are with us. We will not be dismayed because you are our God. Even though we all walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil because we know you're with us and your rod and your staff, they bring us great comfort. God, I pray that we will also not run around and panic like those who have no hope, but we will stand still, that we will stand firm, and that we will stand by to see how you will work in our life. And God, more than anything, we pray that you will be honored and given glory through how we respond and trust in you in a world that has no hope. God, we thank you, we love you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.